Whether you're looking for a convenient refresher course, or a way to earn your Pragmatic certification at your own speed, or the chance to take a Pragmatic course from your specific corner of the world, then Foundations On Demand is the solution you need. Get the same great content, tools, and templates our Foundations course is famous for in a flexible and easy-to-use online learning platform. Learn the skills you need to build and market products people want to buy. And earn your Pragmatic Institute certification anywhere, anytime. No more travel worries, no more time zone issues, just truly great training. Experience the new way of training with Foundations On Demand from Pragmatic Institute. Visit pragmaticinstitute.com foundations to learn more. And welcome to the Pragmatic Product Chat podcast series, where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product management, product marketing, and other market and data-driven professionals with some of the best minds in the industry. I'm Rebecca Calajaris from Pragmatic Institute and your host for this episode. And today I'm extremely excited to welcome back Dan Belkowski, founder and chief pricing officer at Product Tranquility, and just a great guy to talk pricing with. So welcome, Dan. Great to be here, Rebecca. Thank you for having me back. All right, Dan. So I think for those who maybe haven't had the pleasure of listening to your last episode, which they can, of course, search for, or may not have the opportunity to, to kind of read some of your, your thoughts or listen to some of your other podcasts on this topic, tell us a little bit about Dan and how you came to really love pricing and be so passionate about what it is that you do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I spent my entire 20-year career in software. I started more on the value creation side than the value capture side where I'm at today. So first as an engineer, actually writing software and into engineering management. Ultimately, I became fascinated by how our products created customer value and turned into dollars and cents for the business. And this interest led to me to pursue my MBA. I didn't realize it then. I was quite lucky with the MBA program. The program I joined was pretty widely recognized for its excellence in marketing. I didn't find out until very recently, very few MBA programs have courses in pricing. So I got my theoretical grounding and pricing there. And then during that internship, I worked for a very successful Silicon Valley startup and they had a problem on the CEO's desk that they asked me to take a look at while I was there. It happened to be, should we pursue a freemium strategy? Yes or no. A TLDR, I don't recommend freemium. I stare people away from that. We might touch on that later. But ultimately, you know, after that experience, I spent a lot more time on the, again, value creation side of the business, the product manager at the company I, I joined post-grad school. We acquired a lot of other businesses mm -hmm. and rolled them into our product portfolio. So I got to see a tremendous experience from seeing all the mistakes those acquired companies made in their pricing and product strategies. And oftentimes those, uh, although technically uh, product marketing owned pricing, and I, I do believe that's the proper place for it to live, a lot of the product marketers were like, hey, I, I've got to this, do this pricing thing. I don't know. Like, can you help? And so I would end up working kind of both sides there. And mm -hmm. so I was able to build that experience. And you know, now I have the privilege of helping founder CEOs, their teams build sustainable business, help them get their products in the hands of as many customers as possible. That's awesome. I think it's really interesting to sort of the product management, product marketing background here. Partly because I do think that pricing, we frequently hear product managers say they don't own pricing. And I think, but that doesn't mean you don't and shouldn't influence it, right? 
and mm-hmm. and and the information and the and sort of point of view that you can bring to the pricing discussion is one that will be highly valued by those you think own pricing. So it's always an area that I really want to push people to do because I two reasons I think I've seen the impact on careers when someone sort of adds an understanding and a skill set in pricing to their repertoire. But two, I mean, like if you're looking to make an impact in your organization and to directly affect revenue, there's not a lot of ways you can do that faster than by really like looking at your pricing strategy and the leverage is there. I could not agree more. Yes. All right. So we're going to talk about all good pricing stuff. But one of the things and one of the reasons perhaps people don't do pricing as much is like, there's some things that people get wrong, some fundamental pieces that you're like, Dan, if you could just be like, here are the things that I just want people to remember the most. These are the biggest pitfalls that people get wrong with pricing. Yeah, I think when it comes to SaaS pricing, most executives think that what you charge determines your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines mm-hmm. your success. So I would spend most of my time on what the price tag goes on and much, much less to little time on what number goes on the price tag. We tend to get involved in these conversations. People come to me and they are wondering, okay, this is, we're charging this product by the user, for example, and you know, should it be $20 a seat, should it be $100 a seat, should it be $29.95, should it prices ends in fives and nines. I love those conversations. They're super fun, but honestly, they're the least impactful to get right. And especially I deal a lot with pretty much exclusively with B2B. Oftentimes, price level is the easiest to change over time, you know, especially on a deal-to-deal basis where you have discounting, deal-to-deal transactional nature. So much more important is who are we selling to? What is their context? How do they value the product? And then how are we charging? So all the elements of our packaging decisions. So our offer bundles, configurations, price metrics, price models, price fences, those tend to be much more impactful. Okay. So it's, it's now, and when you think about who you charge, that's not necessarily one sort of monolithic group, right? Like everyone is the same. I think there's also a really important thing to understand the segments in who we charge to, because I think that can really, you want to sort of take advantage of different people's willingness to pay, right? Absolutely. I think customer segmentation is critical. It's a first step. We, we may cover this in, in more detail, but I have an overall model for SaaS pricing. I call the services model. It was a happy accident. I promise I didn't plan it that way, but services stands for the four letters of the acronym S, V, C, and S. And as you might imagine, given our topic, the first thing we need to consider is our, our customer segments. Let's do a fun little exercise because I think this might be interesting. So Rebecca, what should a beer cost? Mm. Well, gosh, you know, I can think of it depends. <laughs> right? <laughs> it depends on on where I'm at, I'm at, right? Like the beer at the grocery store is a very different price than the really expensive beer at the ballpark, right? Because you can. And because I want one more when I'm at the ballpark with the, you know, the crack of the bats. What kind of beer makes a big difference, right? Like, you know, there's my favorites from when I was younger beer and then the beer that I grew into. <laughs> that I like. So there's all of those different things. But for me, I think a huge part of it is where I'm at when I think of beer. It's like, what am I doing at the time? Because I will pay a very different amount. Then. Yeah. So what's your go-to beer? Well, now it's wine. Uh, <laughs> I've moved on. I was a cheap beer girl for a very long time. I was like a Miller Lite girl. And now though, if I do have a beer, I do like, you know, like a nice Sam Adams uh, IPA. Okay. So give me for a Sam Adams IPA, uh, how much should a Sam Adams IPA cost? Given all the things that you've, you've described. 
Like if I was going to grab a six pack at the grocery store, you know, maybe it's a twelve ninety nine six pack. Okay. If I'm right. at the ballpark, it's probably twelve ninety nine a beer. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I love your answer. Thank you for participating in my little pricing uh, research study that we just did. <laughs> so one thing I want to make clear for the listeners is that you went to this place very naturally. And I think it's great that you did it, but not everyone does. And I think we, we tend to lose sight of it. You looked at what is the context that you're in when you're making that purchase decision? Because the context is crucial to helping us understand what we value, why we value it, how much we value those things. And so when we made the distinction between a grocery store versus a bar or nightclub versus the, the ballpark, of course, you've got a much different context. Mm-hmm. You've got different competitive alternatives. You've got different value drivers that you're associated with. And so there's not one market price. And I think this is why customer segmentation is so important. I use a very jobs to be done approach mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I think about this and in jobs to be done right up front. We don't think about persona. We think about context because context drives the outcomes we're trying to achieve, the constraints, and ultimately the, the direction that we're trying to move and, and what might be in our way. Right. And so this is one of the primary reasons why in the services model, S is the, the most important. So let's talk about the services model. You can't just like leave that up. Every listener is going to be like SVCS. So we know that the first S is for segment. I have a guess on the next, the V, but I tell me. So I see companies usually face, you know, four significant challenges when they try Mm -hmm. to tackle pricing. So again, they have an unclear target customer profile. They don't understand what customers are serving. They have a poor understanding of how they create customer value. They're unclear about their product's unique differentiation. Finally, they have a general underappreciation for the depth of decisions that go into a strong pricing and packaging approach. So we tend to think about pricing as a decision mainly around price level, as I mentioned before, and neglect many other factors. So this, I created my services model based upon this experience. And again, we start with our customer segments first. The context our customers are in is critical because that'll dictate the constraints and the value drivers they view as most important. The second part is value because each segment will rank order value drivers differently. It'll cause them to value your product differently. The third part of the model, we have competitions. So different mm. segments have different competitive alternatives available to them. In the beer example that we just went through, you know, you're at the ballpark. It's not as if they have very strong price fences, which is usually the security <laughs> security guy patting you down, making sure you're not bringing that grocery store alcohol into the ballpark. Mm-hmm. This is what we call a price fence in the pricing world to dictate that, okay, now I have a constrained set of competitive alternatives. Even if I wanted to get a, a non-alcoholic beverage, I wanted to get a, a Coca-Cola or something, that's also going to be $8. So I, you know, my, all my frames of reference have changed, for example, in that case. And then finally, you know, we think of those, those elements, the segments, value, and competition as the first three elements is our inputs to the overall pricing process. Because your mm-hmm. pricing power really comes from the differentiated value you provide for a particular segment beyond the competitive alternatives that are available. And then those elements filter down to what I call strategy. And I use strategy in the Michael Porter sense of the word. So strategy is about trade-offs. Many companies would like to be everything to everyone, but we ultimately have to decide, you know, what customer segments will we serve given the available segments of the market, where are we best suited to play and win? Who are we going to target? How do we position ourselves in the minds of those customers to clarify our differentiated value? Then how do we make all the necessary trade-offs among the different elements of SaaS packaging? Like I mentioned before, the price metrics, price model, offer configurations, price fences. These inputs will also help us inform our choice of price level, the number we set to achieve our business objectives. Right. And I mean, I think, so those are all fantastic. So we could listen. We talked a little bit about segment. That's the most important thing is who are you selling to? And 
understanding that again, that we want to break this up into segments because they will have different willingnesses to play because they have different value that that problem is to solve. We always use the classic example of like oxygen, right? You're sitting at home, you're not going to pay for oxygen. There are definitely scenarios that you would pay for oxygen, right? Like as a scuba diver, I would pay for Mm -hmm. oxygen. Potentially, if I was really hungover in Vegas, that people will pay for oxygen, right? Like there are some different use cases that, that people definitely do. But then let's talk a little bit about value and differentiation and how, how do we understand how those different segments value our product? So what are some of the approaches that you talk about with your customers about how to really establish a clear understanding that's not based on our opinion of what those segments and how those segments value what we offer? Yeah, it's a great question. And you said a, a couple of different things in there. So one fun paradox of pricing that it ties back to your oxygen scuba divers is what's called the diamond water paradox. And this even this stumped Adam Smith, the, the granddaddy of modern uh, economic theory, where why do diamonds cost more than water when water is necessary for survival and diamonds are absolutely not. They very fun- <laughs> low functional use. The short answer is we pay for the last unit, the marginal value of the last unit of whatever product we're we're talking about. But that's another discussion. I think going back to one thing that you said at the beginning of our conversation, you see product managers are not usually responsible for pricing. One thing I think might help frame our conversation is that I'm fully of the belief that intelligent price management starts with intelligent value management. Mm. And so one of the things that we really, I try to help is a fighting what I might call value illiteracy. So value tends to be one of these terms that is thrown around without very strict definitions. And therefore, you know, we end up a lot of times talking past each other. And so when we think about, you know, value and, and why customers get value, you know, there's a, I use a couple of different frameworks. I already mentioned jobs to be done, and I'm sure you've covered jobs to be done at length in previous episodes. So I'm not going to belabor for this audience the idea of jobs to be done, but I really like, especially Tony Olwick's formulation of, you know, if we think about the outcomes, we got functional and emotional outcomes. Those are you know, the functional outcomes being things like helping save time, decrease costs, increase revenue, increase optionality. If we think about those jobs to be done statements, we think about the overall value that we're that someone's getting from our solution. But this is, I will layer in another framework here that came from a gentleman named Tom Nagel, who wrote the seminal book on pricing called The Strategy and Tactics of Pricing. So it's absolutely the Bible for anyone who does pricing work seriously. It's a bit dense for your listeners. So, you know, but it it will definitely change your orientation of, of the pricing world for sure. He introduced this concept or this framework called the value cascade. So we think about that overall sort of jobs to be done lens. We're really looking at there is what's called use values. Economists might term that utility. But for a pricing exercise, we really want to think about exchange value. So exchange value is the difference. There's a reference price because we live in a market environment. And then there's a differentiation of our product versus some other alternatives. So mm-hmm. let me use an example. Let's say Gilligan's Island, for those of you who are uh, <laughs> remember those reruns, there was a bunch of folks trapped on a desert island. One of them was Mr. Howell. Mr. Howell is a millionaire in, in 1960s terms. So let's assume he's a, he's a billionaire in, in, with inflation adjusted. You know, Mr. Howell, his use value to get off that island should be all the money in his bank account. And if, if that analogy is not landing for the demographic of the audience, maybe we'll just say Elon Musk is trapped on a desert island. Uh, <laughs> that, might, <laughs> that might resonate more. So Elon, how much should Elon pay to get off the island if a, a ship captain shows up? Well, his money is absolutely useless to him. 
And so he should be willing to give all of his money and as much as he could raise from his rich friends to get off the island because his, his money is effectively useless otherwise. Now, that ship captain A says, all right, I'll do it. I'll take you for a billion. But ship captain B shows up just as they're concluding negotiations saying, mm. Mr. Musk, Mr. Musk, you don't have to pay that ship captain a billion. I will take you for a million. Now there's a new market price. So now it's no longer use value. It's now we're talking of the world of exchange value. So exchange value, again, is a, a reference price. So now it's that million. And now ship captain B has a choice. He could choose to enlist in this market economy and go, okay, well, this guy's going to charge a million. You know, maybe I can get a million five because my boat's more comfortable and I'll let him use my captain's quarters and I'll serve him dinner and drinks and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll play him the lute or whatever uh, instrument the ship <laughs> captain happens to play. So this is the idea of now these people are competing on differentiated value, right? And so all that's well and good. And I'll, I'll put the, the Musk <laughs> example to the side for now. The thing is, though, is that we could go through a very detailed estimation of economic value that direction. But ultimately, value is in the eye of the beholder, which to us is the eye of the customer. And so we need to take into account the last step of the value cascade, which is perceived value. So mm -hmm. our differentiation only matters to a customer in as much as they perceive that it matters. So they are not rational economic actors. They are not as well versed about all of the alternatives and differentiating benefits between you know, all of the alternatives that are available to them in the market. And therefore, they'll take shortcuts. And so this is, this is where we get into the idea of different short heuristics that people make, right? Okay, hey, I talked to Rebecca and a couple of her friends and asked them what CRM they use and what they heard. And maybe I go and look at a couple of reviews on TrustRadius or G2. And then, you know, there was some, uh, I went to their web pages and, and I saw that this, you know, company had, you know, XYZ companies in their logo garden and they had a couple of customer testimonials, right? And so I'm not going to look at their full, you know, list of 300 features because that's going to take a lot of time. And in economic terms, economists call these search costs. So buyers make very rational decisions to budget their time and energy in search hmm. of a product, right? And so they use shortcuts like customer testimonials or what are the social proof, what other customers have bought this product, you know, and sometimes we'll even use price as an indicator of quality. So, you know, you, if you are buying a Rolex and you have to ask what the price is, you're probably not in the market for a Rolex because, you know, it's, it's usually not mentioned. But similarly, right, if you're shopping at Walmart, like prices front and center, like everyday low prices is part of their strategy. So really, if we think about that, that can help us, you know, really get precise about what we're talking about when we're talking about understanding customer value. So I'll stop there and see which direction you want to go from there. Well, no, and I think that's really important because we talk about the value that we deliver and that's one aspect, but the real aspect that affects price is the willingness to pay of the market for that value, right? So we can be like, oh my God, we'd make their life so much better. But if they don't, if it's not urgent enough, if it's not a pervasive enough problem for them, if they just don't, if there's a believability issue, if it's just not in their top 20 of problems to solve, that value may very well be true. We may have the best ROI calculator that will show it to them, but there has to be a willingness to pay on the other side of that to match it. And I Absolutely. think that sometimes we also overinflate our own value in our minds, maybe, right? And because it's, this is what we focus on with our product. We know what problem we're solving, but we really need to understand that in the context of the overall market to make sure that we're aligned with them on, on willingness to pay. And I thought your, the, our good friend Elon Musk's example and the, the difference between use and exchange value. And this leads a little bit to your third, your C in services, right? Your, your competitive landscape. 
And it's interesting because it's a place where often people start like sort of a naive pricing strategy, right? Like, oh, well, you know, Walmart charges $10. We will charge $9.99. Done. Right? But it is... So it can be an over-focus for some people's pricing strategy, but it also is an important aspect of defining your pricing strategy is to understand that competitive landscape. And I would think not just the price tag that they have on it, but to your point from earlier, the who and the how of your competitor's pricing strategy is, I think, place maybe that's often overlooked just for that sort of the, the end price tag number. Yeah. And, and I often, you know, if we think about sort of a baseline customer segmentation, I generally do not like firmographic segmentations where you would separate customers based upon you know, their company size or, or revenue. Mm-hmm. But many people do it as, as a, at least a first pass filter. You know, if you've got a product configuration, say in a in SaaS, we often have good, better, best offer configurations. Say your your good offering is for the SMB market and the best offer is for the enterprise market, those might be competing against very different products. And I really mm-hmm. like jobs to be done from the framing of competitive alternatives because in that low end, your primary competitor might be an intern in spreadsheets versus on the high end, it might be an entirely different next best competitive alternative that you're needing to, to understand. And I think you, you had asked this in your previous question. You know, one of the things that we want to make sure that we do is develop a soft skill of mm. digging for value. And one of these soft skills, really the trick is driving prospects in our, in our research to a dollar sign and really helping them get to financial value. And really what we're doing is exploring ultimately their needs kind of their solutions, how they're addressing those needs now and you know, how their current solutions are you know, not raising the bar or if they just went through a purchase situation, say they, they chose another product in the category, really helping that customer or that market participant elaborate what was the, the differentiation between them? What did it help them do? And mm-hmm. this is a skill set as you know, many other folks have realized, you know, customers will talk in you know, solution language, they'll talk in feature language, but you know, it's on us when we're having these value-based discussions for a pricing context, really to help them dig out what their outcomes are that they're trying to achieve, like how they will judge the effectiveness right, from a jobs to be done lens. And I think that's a really smart reminder too, that like we have different competitors potentially for different versions of our product for, for different you know levels of it. And it's not as, again, sort of one size fits all there. The last S you said was strategy, right? So we have all sort of the market-driven aspects of what we could charge based on what we learn from about our segments and the value and the competitive landscape. And then that's not always directly related to what we will charge, right? Because we have strategic initiatives that may may change and make it higher or lower price, right? The, the classic come in for cheap milk and then buy everything else in the store examples. Or, But one of the things that I think that I'm circling back to one of your very first comments mm. when you were like, spoiler alert, I do not recommend freemiums. But I think that's an area where a lot of people think, oh, we're going to do it free because our corporate strategy is land grab, get access. So talk to me a little bit about freemium and why you're like, mm, not so much. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the land grab that you mentioned is often part of this idea of land and expand. Hmm. And I think that it's somewhat of a fool's errand that ends up being mostly more of a hope than a strategy. So the companies that do this tend to, there's some sort of vision in the future at which they'll actually effectively monetize their customers, but that's not 
there's no motion built today that will actually help them achieve that. And generally, if a market share bias is quite a market share bias really frames your decision making in suboptimal ways. Like we didn't really touch on this, but a effective price is really one that helps you maximize long-term profitability. And I think we have this view that, oh, if we get market share, then we'll ultimately get to profitability. But that's Mm. actually not the way it turns out in practice. Most of the successful companies that are constantly quoted in you know business school case studies or, or you know HBS or et cetera, whether that's Southwest or you know any other number of, of firms, they tended to be profitable from the start mm. and then grew to dominate their firms having being profitable uh, the entire way. So I'll say that with you know in general, you, you want a view towards optimizing long-term company profitability. And that's really where effective pricing is, is best played. In terms of your specific question around freemium, in general, the better answer when someone brings up freemium is free trial. Hmm. I'm a big fan of free trials. When we think about software, which is the area I play, software is what economists would call an experience good, which means my perception of the value of the product changes as I use it. Therefore, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, again, you're, you're, I'm sure you have amazing website designers and amazing marketers writing white papers and case studies and demo videos. But there's something, you know, we all feel it when we try out a product, right? This is why they have samplers in the grocery store. You're walking around, you're like, oh, okay, whatever. The, the pretty box might say one thing, but you, you throw that shrimp tail in your mouth. You're like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. How, how much is it? Like, I'll buy. There's something that our our lizard brains really don't react to until we we get our hands on on the offer and really see it, especially with our data. So generally, a free trial is a really solid way to do that. But what I found with with freemium, again, it, it depends much more on this, this hope than strategy. In a B2B context, it just almost never makes sense. There's a couple of rare cases which we could touch on if it's of interest. But in general, you, for freemium to succeed, you need a absolutely massive market, like millions of users to create, you know, thousands of customers because the conversion rate on freemium is incredibly low. It's like one to 3%. And I think it creates a lot of dysfunction inside of an organization because, you know, I'll make the distinction when we talk about freemium between users and customers, customers pay us, users just use the product Mm -hmm. for free. Yeah. And there's, look, CMOs, growth teams under incredible pressure to acquire new customers. And so, you know, they're going out and doing hard work in, in SEO and paid search and social and all the other channels that they can. There's this mirage sitting there of, well, look at, we've got 97% of our user base is sitting there on the free side. If only we invested a little bit more on the product just to, we could move those people over. It's like this gold mine, but it's, it's an illusion. It almost yep. never happens. Yep. What you tend to find is that you're going back to this idea of segmentation, the people that go on free and stay on free, right? Who weren't naturally going to convert like you would have with the free trial, those customers tend to not look like you're paying customers. So, you know, I've I've heard a lot of justifications over the years of people like, oh, well, eventually, after years and years, they'll they'll eventually move over. <laughs> Wear them down. Yeah, I guess, you know, well, they'll they'll grow, right? It's like, oh, today most of those people are solopreneurs. But in the future, those people could be CEOs of 100-person companies. And it's like, yeah, they could. Yeah. But in the meantime, there's a couple of other negative side effects. So you're going to have a lot of distraction of your product team with that uh, motion because 
You're going to have your product managers are going to be constantly fending off of, well, just do this one thing because the free side is asking for it. And we think this, you know, this little experiment will move them over. So they're constantly having to, you know, Jedi mind trick the rest of the organization to be like, oh, no, this is not the George you're looking for. We don't want to do that. Also, because those segments, that segment is tends to not look like the rest of your actual customers, it tends to pollute your product feedback channel. So, you know, you're going to get a massive amount of volume from the free side. Yeah. And some, you know, some I've seen this in companies with clients, for example, where, you know, they might have, you know, light touch support for free, free users. I generally don't recommend that, but some people do. And, you know, they'll have escalations in Slack. And there's, you know, sometimes a not a bright flashing light of saying this feedback or this problem is coming from a free user. It's not coming from an actual customer, right? That the product team is spending time responding to, right? So one, it's a distraction. Two, it's you know, potentially getting, you know, product managers are super busy and they're trying to listen to the market, right? And they're maybe getting misled in, in different ways. So there's a whole bunch of other factors that go into this, but I'll, I'll stop there and see if you want to see that any further. No, that was super helpful. And I think the difference, the idea of that freemium, no, but a free trial, right? A set time limit or some other set constraints that mean this is a chance to test it, but it's not an ongoing piece is really great. And then also any sort of any of the product distraction per se that goes into building that free trial is in service to the, it's very directly in service to the longer product because you don't have different versions as much as you have, it's all one. So I, I see that, that makes a lot of sense. And I can see where, those can be good options. And I do think there's a bit of a market expectation these days around SaaS products, at least in the B2C side, for some version of free trial or test. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I just to be clear, everything I just said, I play pretty much exclusively on the B2B yes. side these days. So B2C, you do have some other arguments that can be compelling. Even there, I generally steer people away from, but I think it makes yep. more sense because because it does tend to have that much larger total addressable market in terms of users that yeah. you get in the B2B scenario. Okay. Often when we talk about pricing, people are thinking about pricing a brand new offering or a brand new version in the market. But it's not the only time. You, like, you don't just price it once and forget it. And I think we often forget to think about our existing pricing on our existing products. And so one of the questions I had for you is, as we talk about these different techniques, when should a product manager, what, what signs can they use to say, you know what, I need to relook at the pricing for my existing offering in the market today? How do we know that like mm, existing pricing, existing product isn't right? I should go there. Yeah. So I think there's a couple different avenues here. So I think one is there's no sort of magic number specifies when to revisit pricing. You know, I generally will say it makes sense to revisit at least once a year or whenever a mm. change in product or market necessitates a review. Like you're constantly as a product team and a company changing the value of your products, your competitors are doing so. You never know when you're going to have a major exogenous shocks from the macro environment, like, you know, 50 year inflation or, you know, COVID, right? That may change your plans and necessitate a review. That being said, I think, you know, sort of best in class companies, you know, one, they really have an owner and governance to consistently monitor and manage this over time. So, you know, one thing we want to think about is even if we're not doing any changes, you know, just simple geometry would be like, well, it takes, you know, three data points to confirm a trend and then we're going to make a change and we need another three data points to see a trend in the other direction. So if we do that quarterly, then, you know, if we're only making a change once a year, right, to see see something happening and then make a change and then move on. So the faster we do that review, right, the more data points we can gather, the more attention, right, the more agile we can be. 
things like, you know, should you be looking at your pricing? Should you be making a change? You know, one of the things is like, are your prospects not pushing back on pricing or customers actively telling you how cheap you are or that you create an extremely high ROI for them? If you haven't touched your pricing in years, if you've improved the product dramatically without monetizing, one of the things I'm seeing right now is companies have sort of sown the seeds of their own demise in a way. So one thing that really happened in the run-up in the major, at least the, the tech economic boom that was brought about by you know zero interest rates and COVID and remote work is, again, companies in this massive push to just ship value and grow market share, value, value, value. We're not going to monetize features. Many companies, for example, that had, say, user-based pricing metrics. So if we think about like Salesforce as a CRM, that would be an example where those companies that they sold to were adding headcount, right? So you've got a natural, nice tailwind of revenue expansion because your accounts are gradually expanding, you know, through no fault of your own, but they're adding more, more headcount. Now, in a not so favorable macroeconomic environment, people are reducing headcount. Sales and marketing spend is going down. What was a tailwind now becomes a headwind. And what is sowed the seeds of their own demise is a bunch of that value that we added in the run up was additional automation. AI is obviously big, but we don't even need all the way to level of, of AI, but we added all these tools to make people more efficient. And so on the way down, customers are like, oh, well, actually we could do way more with even, even less. So that's now accelerated this reverse downtrend. So you may be running into a situation like that. And that's what I'm seeing with some folks who are coming knocking on my door. So those are a couple of things that you could be looking at. Nice. Nice. I mean, I think that to your point, like just to, to summarize it, right? It's an ongoing thing. The more data input you can get, the more frequently you should evaluate it, but you should definitely think of pricing it. And again, you know, one of the things, it is a place where product people can have a very large impact on the top line and the bottom line if they can look at ways to optimize the pricing and in- increase the profitability. There is very little else you can do in your career that's going to get you a sort of better return than being able to improve the profitability of the organization. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it's it's an important, often overlooked lever yeah. to look at. And, and I will mention one more thing because I think it's important. So we haven't touched a lot on like choice of like pricing metric, for example, right? Whether it's seats or, you know, API mm. number of API mm. transactions or amount of data stored, et cetera. But I'll use pricing metric and we could sub in any of the other elements of packaging as well. But you know, one thing is if you really feel like the description of your pricing metric isn't really aligned with the value of the product that you sell, that's a critical thing to get mm. correct. And so, you know, one of the areas where it, it can rear its head is customer is or prospect is on the phone with sales. Sales is explaining like, you know, hey, this product is the best thing since sliced bread. The prospect's nodding their head. They're like, oh my God, this is amazing. I totally use it in my world. And then they go, all right, well, how much does it cost? And they go, okay, well, can you tell me how many chickens you have in your backyard? And I was like, <laughs> well, I... Uh, what what does that have to do with anything? Like, well, well, because because that's how we we monetize mm. is we ask our customers mm-hmm. how many chickens they have, and so obviously I'm, I'm joking, but you know, companies do this all the time. Of like of like, well, we we monitor how many users, but those users, if they visit you four times on the twelfth month of the year, then they only count as a quarter of a user. But if they value you six, you know, and we go through this really elaborate explanation. And if you think about you know pricing again, it's not just the price level that we change, right? Because obviously that can have a giant outsized impact on 
our business success. But if you've got a pricing story that doesn't align to your value story, it just throws sand mm-hmm. in the gears of your customer acquisition machine. So that is another major signal and a place that you know I think product managers can be well suited to be involved in that conversation because they really understand the value that our products are providing our customers. Well, and I think again, that's that's a really good point too, because the how we're pricing, the what is it, you know, is it how many opportunities you have? Is it how many salespeople you have? Obviously, it, using an imaginary CRM for an example mm-hmm. here, right? Again, help us tie more closely to the value and the outcome that they're looking for. And that's a place where there is then more room as it feels like you rise and fall with your customer. That's how your pricing is set up. That can be a great win. Gosh. We can, and maybe one day I can get Dan back here and we can spend all day talking about packaging because I think it's one of the most exciting parts about it. I think it is a place where you, when you think about product marketing in particular, but not just product marketing, product management as well, that there is a lot to talk about with that. And that is something that it's hard to argue that product doesn't own that area. And it is 100% tied in with packaging. So Hmm. one day we'll get Dan back here to talk about that. I'll be happy to do round three, Rebecca. Excellent, Dan. Excellent. All right. We talked about a bunch of different things, but like just let's go through some just like brass tacks, tactics that you would like people, you know, listening today, talking about what we focus on. What are a few things that people could do tomorrow that would really help them in this space? Going back to one of the things I mentioned earlier, like really companies that are really sort of world-class at this, they Mm. have governance in pricing. Mm. You know, we, if you think about product management. It's like, why does product management exist? It's because without them, right, there's all these needs of disparate stakeholders, the internal C-suite, their departments, plus the customer, all pulling in multiple different directions. And somebody's got to sit there and hear everyone, make sure everyone's listened to, and then make decisions that move in the best direction of the business. And so first is, do you have an owner for pricing? And we didn't get into who, but you know, mm. generally my recommendation is, is product marketing. That person can be the leader of a pricing committee. I think that's usually a really good, you know, until, I, and I know, right, we'd never want to do product management by committee. I, I've lived that. I know that's, that's terrible. I would never recommend it. But until pricing reaches the maturity of a product mm. management function, I think a pricing committee is the best way to go. There's just too many opinions and we have to make sure people get brought in early and that we're constantly, we have a a forum to surface these strategic aspects of the business. So having an owner, having a process, you know, creating a a measurement system around that. So that's kind of, that's very tactical. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, very simply too, I think we've talked a lot of it at the strategic level, but, you know, at the tactical level, have a discounting policy and enforce it. And those are two different things. I've seen companies that have policies and that don't actually enforce it. You know, monitoring those that we didn't talk about ways to measure or look at different signals of your pricing effectiveness, but you're monitoring uh, discounts over time can can be a very good indicator to notice if you guys are off mm. track. If your if your salespeople are having to reach for you know the discount lever uh, far too often or, or in two ex- extreme scenarios, that can be a way to help you. One, retain some of that key profitability, but then two, give you a good signal on on what to do with your pricing. And then look, start making small changes. I think one of the areas here, besides not having an owner, people just, for whatever reason, pricing is looked at as this voodoo black box magic. It is art and science, but it's much more science than it is art, you know, and much like anything else, you know, if you start making small changes, raising prices, localizing prices in significant markets. Those can be baby steps to help you not treat uh, pricing as this boogeyman that you just hide in the bed and never talk about. 
Love it. Love it. All right, Dan, this was great. Always a pleasure to have you on. And thank you for your insights and your and your thoughts. If people want to learn more about Dan and Dan's thoughts on pricing, where can they go? Yeah, I'm happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn, Dan Balkowski, and just let me know you heard me on the podcast. So I can separate from the rest of LinkedIn spam. And I try to blog regularly, demystify this world of pricing and packaging outline the the mistakes and, and pitfalls I've made along the way. And, you know, I've seen others make. So uh, I do that on producttranquility.com. But yeah, happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn. Excellent. All right. Thank you, Dan. That does it for today's episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And don't forget to join us next week when we tackle another great topic designed to help elevate your product, your company, and your career. <laughs>